very excited to welcome you back to Senior Moments with Bob Johnson after our somewhat elongated though necessary absence. Our last podcast was actually in February of 2020, just prior to the explosion of the coronavirus epidemic in our country, which essentially paralyzed all of our activities and halted our lives in place. Despite the difficulties of living through this pandemic, it is yet just another unique life experience within the nearly 100-year lifespan of Bob Johnson. Today, he discusses these life events, experiences, and memories in today's return installment, episode 13, entitled, Witness to a Century. As always, it is my distinct pleasure to present to you your mentor and host, a healthy and virus-free Bob Johnson. Bob, it's very nice to be with you again. We have moved our quarters to Studio 2 because of the pandemic, and our audio may be affected a little bit by the wearing of masks, which we have done for several months. Before we get started with the topic at hand, I would like to ask how you, your wife, and family have fared during this isolation period. Mr. Ivey, it's always a challenge to me to live up to your introduction, but we're going to do our best today. As far as the pandemic is concerned, our family has done very well, and I think one reason for that is that they have, every member of our family uh, has taken advantage of the advice we've been given by the medical profession to wear masks and uh, be careful in crowds and uh, wash your hands regularly and do all the other things necessary. And Apparently it pays off because uh, Our extended family is all still uh, virus-free. That's wonderful to hear. It really is. We've been at this isolation and dealing with this pandemic for almost six months or so, which is just a small blip in your lifespan of of almost 100 years. You were given that topic, and and it's certainly uh, an overwhelming one, but I understand that you kind of have a special spin uh, regarding your approach to this topic, and maybe as an introduction, you can kind of tell us uh, how you want to approach this. Well, quite frankly, I figure the people, all the people who are listening to this podcast are pretty familiar with what the world is like today. And I'm just going to be emphasizing what it was like during the years when I was forming my attitudes toward life and my whole pattern of coping with the world around me. And it wasn't certainly during the time of smartphones and texting and all of the things that are the remarkable things that are being done today. So I'm going to emphasize what it was like in the 1930s and 1940s, the first half of the 1940s, because I have, an adi- I have an opinion that our whole way of dealing with the world around us is pretty much formed in, our, in us during the years between age 5 and 18. Because uh, to me, I, I think of my grandparents and I say, oh, they were so old-fashioned. Then I think about it and I say, oh my gosh, when my grandparents were growing up, 
the world was awash with Civil War veterans, something that is in a distant memory for, uh, in, in history books. They, uh, they had to deal with uh, uh, the Spanish-American War and, and uh, were even a little bit of World, well, a little bit of world War I. And then I think of my own parents, who uh, seemed kind of old-fashioned to me in many ways, and I, I'm sure most teenagers look at their parents that way. And yet my parents grew up during the uh, closing days of World War I. Uh, they, uh, they had to deal with the Spanish flu epidemic, which killed many more people than the current epidemic has killed in the world. Uh, they had to deal with prohibition and uh, gangsters and Machine Gun Kelly and uh, Babyface Nelson and John Dillinger and all the gangsters who were running alcohol. I uh, recently heard that uh, in New York City there were 30,000 speakeasies where you could get liquor, for, which was prohibited by law, freely dispensed. So it was a very different world in which our parents grew up. That's why I'd kind of like to talk a little bit about the world to the world today, about what it was like in the 30s and 40s, because that's when I formed my attitude. Well, given that introduction and that bend towards our topic, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about what daily life was like. Well, uh, let, let's talk about uh, buying your groceries. Uh, today you wheel a cart into a place and uh, uh, with some help from the, maybe a little help, but mostly from your own work, you've uh, picked out all your groceries and you pull out a charge card and pay for them and out you go. Back then, you walked into a grocery store, unless it was Wednesday afternoon because they all closed on Wednesday afternoons. Uh, you walked into the grocery store with your little list and you walked up to the counter and the man behind the counter said, what would you like today? And you said, well, I'd like five pounds of sugar and I'd like some flour and I'd like this and that and he would uh, take them off the shelf behind him and he would write each item down in pencil on a paper bag uh, how much it cost and then when you came to the end of your list and you had all the items piled on the counter that you bought for that day uh, he would add up the list uh, mentally no no computers involved and uh, write the total down and you would pull out the cash hopefully if you had it or you'd put it on your bill because times were hard and uh, then he would fill the bag and you'd go home and you'd have uh, your receipt was the paper bag that, the, uh, that it came in. Uh, he might, uh, if you were looking for some meat, because the refrigeration of the day was uh, pretty poor, uh, you probably would buy meat two or three times a week. Uh, and he might not even have a butcher section in his shop. So then you'd go to the butcher store, which was down the street, and uh, you'd order the cuts of meat you want and you'd either eat them that day or the next day, probably. So certainly grocery shopping was a very different sort of a thing. I might uh, talk a little bit about attitudes, too. Uh, the uh, attitude toward women was certainly different. Women were achieved uh, suffrage and able to vote, to vote with the uh, 19th Amendment back in uh, 1920, uh, but uh, they, they still hadn't really accepted women as anything other than housewives and the bearers of children in those days and occasionally the spinsters would be spinsters would be teachers uh, i happen to have occasion to talk with representatives of a company oh back when i first came out of college i was talking with them about uh, what was happening in that company back in the 30s and they said well they had plenty of women working there but uh, if a woman decided that she wanted to get married as soon as she was married she was fired because they said well these are times are hard 
and people really, uh, the men are the only breadwinners in the family, and so uh, you shouldn't be taking up a job that a man should be filling, so if you're a female, you are fired. And many companies, including this one I happened to talk with at the time, said, oh, we never hired uh, black people or uh, any Irish. We, we told Irish not to apply. We didn't want them. Things have changed, obviously, a very great deal since then. If you uh, happen to watch old movies, as I often do, you will be struck by the fact that everybody seems to be constantly smoking cigarettes. And the advertising in those days was uh, led you to believe that doctors highly recommended your smoking Chesterfields or Lucky Strikes or uh, Sir Walter Raleigh or any of those others because they were good for you. They treated your throat very well. Obviously, things have changed a lot since then. I won't go into that, but I was always, I've always been struck by the extent to which cigarettes kind of dominated uh, the old movies and, and daily life. Just about everybody smoked. When I got ready to go to college uh, in the 40s, I spent a lot of time uh, secluded in the bathroom trying to learn how to smoke a cigarette because when I got to college, that's what everybody else was doing. Another thing that uh, might uh, surprise people uh, looking back on those days is that uh, when you were in your grocery store, you didn't buy any milk. That was uh, delivered to your home by the milkman every day, and if he left it out on the porch, <clears throat> as they often did, and it was cold weather, uh, when you went to pick up the milk, it had, uh, the cream had risen about uh, four or five inches above the top uh, because it had frozen and it uh, just uh, expanded during that time. Most homes had a little door in the side of their house where the milkman could deposit the milk that he delivered each day and that would kind of keep it from from freezing. Most homes did not have anything called refrigerators. We'll talk about refrigerators a little later, but they had an ice box. In fact, many of the people in my earlier, the earlier generations, my mother still called it the ice box, but it was just a, a a insulated uh, appliance which had ice in it and they had to bring ice in just about every two or three days because they'd bring in a 25 pound of block of ice and put it into your ice box and uh, that would start dripping into a little pan underneath it but it would keep things cool and uh, the uh, ice man would uh, uh, deliver the, uh, the ice uh, usually 25 or 50 pounds in a big block. The ice truck delivery is, is interesting. Did you ever have occasion to uh, take a ride in the back of an ice truck? Never did ride in the back of an ice truck, but I spent uh, quite a bit of my time uh, when I was a little kid in the 30s climbing onto the back of the ice man's truck. And as soon as he left his truck to uh, carry his 25 or 50 pound block of ice, into somebody's house, I and uh, the members of my group, uh, other kids my age, would clamber onto the top of the, the back of the truck, picking up a few wood splinters along the way, and uh, grab any little chunks of ice that might have been broken loose from uh, when the ice man was breaking up the, uh, uh, the big unit of ice. I don't know where that ice came from, I can't imagine. I hope it didn't come in from the frozen canal. <laughs> At any rate, uh, uh, we would pick up those pieces of ice and on a, a hot summer day, uh, that, that was just the biggest treat you could imagine. That was the high point of the day to get a sliver of ice from the ice man's truck. Today they probably wouldn't allow it uh, just because of legal concerns, but uh, that wasn't a concern in those days. People used to do their shopping mostly on Saturday, but occasionally on Friday night. 
Uh, I remember uh, for entertainment, uh, my mother used to ask my father because we didn't have any money on a Saturday night. She'd say, let's uh, drive our car downtown uh, and uh, park and watch the people go by. Uh, that didn't do much for me as an eight or nine year old, but uh, that was apparently about the only kind of entertainment. Times were really hard, as uh, you're getting that impression, I'm sure, during the uh, Depression of the 30s, which was a very deep one, starting about the time I was born and uh, continuing until World War II started. But the attitude that we inherited from our uh, predecessors, uh, and one which was really applicable during the 30s, was use it up, wear it out, make it do, or do without. I like that sentiment a lot. It seems that each generation feels that their life and lifestyle is more hectic and complicated than the generations before. And I'm wondering, do you think that's a falsity when you enumerate the obstacles and the difficulties of life back then? I don't think it was a simpler and easier time. No, it, uh, it seemed uh, uh, like an easier time, but I think back to my own grandparents if they wanted to have a, a bath, they had to go out and cut down a tree and split the wood and bring it in and get a fire started in their stove. And then they put a pot on top of the stove after bringing up water from the well and heating the water on the stove. And then you had a bath. And they, it's not a surprise that people only did that about once a week, if that often. They also had, if they had to go to the bathroom, they had to go out into the cold winter night and go to the outhouse which my grandparents had. Fortunately, in my own house, we did have running water and flush toilet and things, but uh, uh, that was a big uh, leap forward. But life was just as complicated before things came along. We, they had to cope with many, many things. Uh, we even had some ancestors who were killed by Indians, which is uh, uh, something that, of course, our ancestors, I'm sure, did their share of killing Indians and in back. But uh, at any rate, uh, I think each generation has its own set of obstacles and, and complications to deal with, and uh, that's uh, going to be true, I think, through eternity. They'll probably still be talking about the uh, pandemic of 2020 100 years from now. Indeed. I would like now to ask you some about uh, health concerns and health care in the day. Well, things were very different in the uh, early 30s. And uh, this carried on into the 40s for a little bit, too, because uh, things like measles uh, were very serious. There were two or three different kinds of measles. One of, I, I managed to get them all. There was mumps, which was a very uncomfortable childhood disease. There was scarlet fever, which killed people quite often. Uh, polio was uh, one of the big concerns of our life. We called it infantile paralysis in those days. And uh, many children died, and it was something that... Uh, we all, we all had to worry about. Oh, chicken pox. Uh, even my own children uh, wound up all having chicken pox. And then gradually the medical profession came through with uh, all kinds of new ways of vaccinating people so they didn't get all those childhood diseases. And I think probably most of those are a thing of the past, although I recently heard of a measles outbreak somewhere in the United States. But uh, uh, for the best part, the, the medical profession really has come through, came through for us on all of those nasty childhood diseases. As far as going to the, uh, the doctor is concerned, there weren't, it didn't seem, didn't seem as though there were as many specialists in those days. You, 
you had a doctor you went to and uh, that doctor took all care of all of your problems, uh, or hopefully uh, did, and if you were too sick to go to the doctor, he would come to you and he'd come right into your house and bring his little black bag and and uh, take care of whatever problem you might have. I say his little black bag, I think there were some female doctors, but uh, I just never encountered any during the 30s and 40s. One of the things that both doctors and patients have to deal with these days is medical insurance and all the complications it involves. The things were simpler back in the 30s. There wasn't such a thing as medical insurance. If you went to see the doctor, you paid two or three dollars for your visit, and, and uh, that was uh, that pretty much took care of it. Uh, and uh, I'm sure many doctors just never got paid for uh, the things they did. There were many uh, advertisements of miracle uh, solutions to all of your medical problems in those days. Carter's little liver pills were supposed to take care of any liver problems. There was Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound, which was uh, supposed to solve a problem for women, which I never was aware of quite what the problem was, but they seemed to uh, think it was, a, it was a pretty good idea for you to take it. And uh, there were just a lot of medical solutions uh, in those days which uh, uh, are no longer around. I suspect most of them were uh, uh, spurious and uh, didn't really have the, uh, the miracle solutions, but at least uh, people felt better when they took them thinking it might be helping. Well, as we continue to explore this period in time, what was it like financially for m most of the people in your life? Actually, most of the people were poor because just about everybody else was. It didn't seem so bad in those days. I know my father uh, uh, had a job where he earned $20 a week doing welding and uh, complicated work, uh, and uh, he sometimes was out of work. Things were difficult. We had to uh, look very carefully at every penny that was spent in the household. But everybody was that way. I think uh, if you're interested in uh, what small town life was like in those days, you might want to uh, uh, take a look at uh, the, the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. It did a marvelous job of showing what small town life was like among poor people. And it wasn't, a, the, the depression started at the, uh, in 29. Uh, it really lasted until the uh, World War uh, two started when the our factories started uh, cranking up and the whole situation changed. But in the 30s were times when people were poor, people were robbing banks all over the place just to uh, try to survive. Uh, we had Bonnie and Clyde uh, running around uh, along with Machine Gun Kelly. I think one example of the uh, economy situation was that uh, today it seems to be as though every kid uh, in high school has a car. Back in those days, not only did the kids not have cars, but the teach, most of the teachers did not have cars. People used uh, shoe leather to move around from here to there. It was a lot of walking and uh, uh, taking a bus, but uh, ownership of a car was very unusual. Most people owned old cars. I, uh, one little story I could give is that at one time when I was in my, about maybe seven or eight years old, I was almost run over by an electric automobile. And you might say, electric automobile? They just invented those. No, they had actually electric automobiles, a few of them back then. They must have had massive batteries because the batteries were so unsophisticated in those days and you can't go uh, charging them up at every street corner. But uh, 
they were so quiet that, uh, and there were so few of them around that I happened to walk across the street in my town one time and came very close to being run over by, by one being run by a little old lady. I, uh, another thing that uh, happened in my town is that you kind of had to be careful where you stepped because some of the uh, farmers bringing produce in from the country to uh, stock up those grocery stores, store shelves came in by horse and wagon. And um, my boy friends and I uh, spent a lot of time uh, entertaining their horses while they were in the stores. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a very nice experience to have some of the farms come in to uh, spend some time in town. Well, Bob, you know, what qualifies as poverty today would have probably been considered wealth in the past. As an observer of an entire century, how do you view the financial distribution in the United States? Well, it seems to me as though that uh, people are uh, a lot pickier about the kinds of jobs they will take today because uh, they have to pay more money, and I know prices are a lot higher well, we, everybody was expected to work if they could in those days. I had a paper route from the time I was about nine years old and delivering papers early in the morning or late at night. Then I got to work at a tree nursery where they paid me the grandiose sum of 15 cents an hour. In between times, I looked for other jobs on the farms. I actually turned down a job once. The farmer offered me five cents an hour to work digging things on his, digging up things on his farm. And uh, I didn't go for it. Today, it seems to me, if you don't earn $35,000 a year, you're uh, in a poverty situation. In those days, one of my objectives while I was, when I got out of college was to get to the point of making 10000 a year someday. Obviously, those times have changed. Another question about the financial situation then is that I assume that there were very few homeowners. When in this span of time did home ownership become a real possibility for even the middle class? Well, most people rented their property. Uh, I think I know my parents did up until a time when uh, apparently a family farm got uh, sold and my father got a few dollars. I think he bought the house we lived in. Uh, for many years for something like $3,500 and that was with a big mortgage. A man came around uh, once a month and collected uh, under a government program uh, which uh, they had in those days. But uh, home ownership was pretty rare. Most people rented their property and were grateful to have a roof over their heads uh, uh, under any circumstances. You mentioned earlier that people got around with shoe leather wanted you to expand on that and maybe talk a little bit about the transportation available at the time. Yes, uh, so few people had cars that uh, buses were used a lot to get from uh, if you had to go a great many miles. I remember anything under three or four miles we just walked. But uh, if we had to go to Rochester from uh, my town 10 miles away, uh, we would uh, hop the bus. It never occurred to us to, that uh, well, we just didn't have a car <laughs> most of the time. The reliability of cars was quite uh, uh, different from what it is today. I know that uh, I was told that if you uh, were to go more than uh, a thousand miles, you had to probably change and repair a blowout and one of the tires. The tires are very unsophisticated, but people carried little kits uh, in their car, and if they had a blowout, they took the tire off, they took the inner tube out, they patched it up with some glue and some stuff, 
put it back in and got back and drove on. You had to get an oil change about every thousand miles unless you wanted your car to burn up. I might mention uh, one of the unusual features of automobiles, which uh, a couple of them that uh, never that aren't true today. Some cars, if you wanted to start them, they didn't have a little button to push or a key to turn like you do today. No, they had to go into the trunk and get out a crank, carry it around to the front of the car, put it into a little uh, one end of it into a little hole in, uh, just above the bumper and, and under the radiator and crank the thing as hard as you could because that turned the motor over and got things going. Unfortunately, occasionally they would backfire and if that happened there was a very good chance it would break your arm. But uh, that was one of the hazards of automobile ownership in those days. The other thing that was unusual that you just don't see today was the rumble seat. If, you can, uh, if you've never seen a rumble seat, uh, the fact is that uh, uh, you can imagine an automobile where the roof comes down in front of the back trunk. And in the back trunk are a couple of seats where you can sit and enjoy the fresh air. Uh, unfortunately, if it started to rain, you got pretty wet because you didn't have any roof over your head. And it was extremely dangerous. Uh, uh, but people love to ride in the rumble seat of a car. Uh, but I think they figured out that uh, too many people were getting killed because of it, and uh, they stopped putting them into automobiles. It's kind of interesting that as we're recounting these different aspects of life, it appears that transportation has probably changed the least because other than flight and airplane use, we still use the bus, the train, and certainly automobiles. Yeah, yeah, very true. One of the things that appears to have changed the most is communication. You certainly have hit the nail on the head with that one, Mr. Ivey, because uh, uh, it used to be that if you wanted to communicate with somebody, if they were farther than shouting distance, you wrote them a letter. And usually you wrote it in cursive because uh, uh, people didn't have only even own typewriters in those days. And, uh, so they taught cursive writing. I think one of my uh, writing teachers uh, probably retired early because of this problem she had with me getting me to write in cursive, but uh, it, it's something you just had to be able to do. So you wrote letters. You didn't uh, uh, do anything else. You didn't text them or any of the things they do today. Uh, you, you wrote a letter. Now, if it was really important, uh, and if you could find a telephone, uh, you uh, usually in a telephone uh, booth of some sort. You uh, you made contact by telephone, uh, and if it's something that uh, uh, another approach you could take would be the telegram. Fortunately, the Pony Express was over by the time I got born, but uh, uh, the telegram was something pretty unusual. If you got a telegram, you knew that something very important had happened. Most people didn't own telephones. My own family did not own a telephone until. Uh, I think uh, I was about uh, 15 years old uh, and uh, started wanting to call girls. But I made a lot of important calls during my life, for, even for my mother, by walking downtown, going into the drugstore, going to the phone booth, putting in my nickel or dime, and uh, making the call. You would typically reach an operator that would have to patch you through, is that correct? Oh yes, if, if, if the call was any more than a few miles away, it got, you gave it a lot of thought because it was going to cost you a lot of money. Long distance calls, you talk pretty fast because every, every second counted. And you had to go through an operator to get your number. Uh, and it was a very different uh, uh, 
uh, arrangement from what we have today. Of course, there were no area codes per se, uh, but everybody had a number and uh, the operator would uh, uh, take care of that. Uh, in my own company, we had a big uh, group of uh, telephone operators when I first started, but uh, they, that pretty soon became a job that, didn't, that no longer existed. And if you did write a letter, the postman was very likely to take it right up to the recipient's house and slide it through a little slot in the door because uh, they, the home delivery was uh, something very special. Having stuff left in the, outside in the, either at the post office or in a mailbox outside your home uh, is something that uh, was developed later on. Newspapers uh, came uh, to your home through uh, uh, usually a young boy who would uh, uh, deliver it uh, every day, either in the morning or the afternoon, depending on the particular paper, and they would usually be tossed right onto your porch. Uh, I had a lot of experience along those lines. The big communication was the radio, and they weren't these little radios that you stick in your ear because those hadn't been invented yet. They had big vacuum tubes in them. And there were usually big pieces of furniture, maybe uh, four feet high, two feet wide, and they fit. Uh, and sometimes they'd be combined with a record player to play the old 78 records. But most of the time, most of the communication that came into the home was over the radio. And uh, everybody would gather around it. Housewives would listen to what they called soap operas because they usually advertised laundry soap and dish soap, and they would listen to, during the day to Vic and, Vic and Sade uh, and uh, uh, Ma Perkins and Pepper Young's family and uh, Argyle Sunday uh, soap operas, which were continued every day. And then in the afternoon, uh, along about uh, four o'clock when kids are supposed to be doing their homework, would on come, uh, in fact, there was a poem that said, uh, between the dark and the daylight, there comes from each radio tower a series of gentle programs that are known as the Children's Hour. Uh, they had uh, Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy, and uh, you could get Don Winslow of the Navy, uh, and uh, Superman, all kinds of uh, stuff on the radio for the kids. Then in the evening would come uh, Fibber McGee and Molly, I Love a Mystery, The Shadow, I well remember. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. <laughs> and that was pretty scary. So that's what people did in the evening. Now for politics, of course, you realize television hadn't been invented yet, or if it had, nobody had one. If the president had a message for the American people, he would have a fireside chat. And that's what Franklin Roosevelt, our long-term president during the 30s and 40s would do is have a fireside chat and the whole family would gather around the radio and listen to what the president had to say. So much of this appears to have gone the wayside because of the computer. I was curious, when did you have your first experience with the computer age? Okay, I guess uh, I could start out with uh, my first bit of equipment in the office other than the telephone on my desk, was a Marchant computer. And that you could do arithmetic, you could multiply, you could divide, you could even find a square root on this thing, which occupied most of the desk. And uh, then gradually the, uh, the equipment became smaller. Toward the end of my career in business, uh, I was given a, 
device on my desk, which I was told cost $10,000, which was a personal computer. And I messed around with it for a while and decided that I would rather uh, dictate things to my secretary than to uh, mess around with this <laughs> computer. Obviously, things have changed a great deal, and uh, I've done some word processing on computers, but there comes a time uh, in your age when you decide you don't want to learn too much new. Let's turn now to what things were like in terms of entertainment. Okay, entertainment uh, was not uh, sitting in front of a computer playing computer games in those days. We didn't have one. And probably uh, we were a lot better off in many respects because we played outdoors every evening. Never saw much of our family from the time dinner was finished until the streetlights came on, which is the time we were required to go in and go to bed. That was pretty much it for most weeknights, but come the weekend, it was the movies. And it was pretty expensive to go to a movie in those days. It cost 10 cents for me as a child to get into the movie, and what did I get for my money? I got two movies, usually one a Western involving uh, Tom Mix or uh, Tim Holt or Hopalong Cassidy, and that was one movie, and the other one would be another movie involving some international adventure. And then would come on the movie tone news, which would tell you what was going on in the world, and then there'd be a cartoon, which uh, might be Bugs Bunny or something like that, uh, one of the Disney productions probably. In case I wasn't all the way exhausted, would come on a, oh, something that went on from week to week. Uh, and uh, each week, uh, it was, uh, again, the perils of Pauline would be an example of that. And each week they try to leave you with a question of what happened next in this episode that you would make you want to come back the following Saturday. Uh, Saturday, uh, ever, just about everybody went to a movie once a week. And so the movie houses were pretty well crowded. And uh, that was pretty much the entertainment that we had other than the, the radio with all of those uh, evening programs, which we enjoyed, and uh, our afternoon programs. I would say not a whole lot of entertainment per se, other than what I've mentioned. During the summer months in my part of the country, the firemen usually had a carnival once a, uh, a year, which would maybe last a week, which was a big, uh, a tr really a traveling entertainment group, which would have their own Ferris wheel and rides and everything like that. And so that was very often a high point of the summer in my town. Uh, we had fireworks. They usually would have fireworks at these. And then, of course, on the 4th of July, uh, we would have uh, our own fireworks. My father would buy uh, 2 or $3 dollars worth of fireworks, which was a big percentage of his week's pay, because he wanted me to be familiar with fireworks. And we would set off a lot on our own. Uh, why we didn't burn down everything, I honestly don't know. I did have the experience of uh, having a large firecracker explode in my hand once, and I can assure you that that would be the uh, last time I would ever take a chance on, on a firecracker because it hurt for a long time. As far as entertainment is concerned, I think probably the town fathers in my town, and I suspect other towns too, felt that it uh, was a good idea to try to keep the young ones moral after school. So at least uh, twice a week, there would be a place where young folks, uh, 13 and 14, could go and dance with each other with uh, plenty of adult supervision and uh, have uh, a good time uh, in a very acceptable social situation. I suspect uh, that was a very good thing to do, and uh, I certainly took full advantage of it. 
Another uh, time of year which was uh, pretty entertaining for us was Halloween. When my children uh, started growing up and talked about trick-or-treat, I had no idea what they were talking about at first because you know, I, I never had thought of Halloween as involving treats. To me, Halloween was a time to make the adults in town as, as uncomfortable as possible without doing serious damage. So the trick part was all that ever counted. And, and I, I would consider going to a door and saying, you give us some candy or I'll do, perform a trick. I would consider that extortion or blackmail <laughs> or something like that, really bad. So instead, of course, the easiest thing we did was ringing a doorbell. And, uh, we would pound on windows and uh, use uh, soap to put soap on people's windows, which meant the next day they had to go out and erase it all. My father taught me how to, using a, a, a spool of thread uh, and a, a nail, to put up against a window and pull it after putting notches in it, and it would make a terrible noise, and I'm sure it, it probably was distressing few, for a few people. Fortunately, in uh, where I lived, there were very few outhouses, but we were told stories about kids before our generation, back probably our parents' generation, where a favorite thing to do was to go and overturn somebody's outhouse. And uh, that always struck me as a little bit counterproductive in many ways. I would say that the evolution of Halloween has, has been a very positive change given that. That's fascinating. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> In terms of, say, the generation after you and the subsequent generation, it seems that adult leisure time is often spent with neighbors, friends, couples, cocktail parties, bars, alcohol-related. Was that true back then? Uh, it didn't happen to be in my uh, generation. I know uh, after my father died, my mother uh, was uh, did some dating uh, after a couple of years went by. Occasionally, they would uh, wind up uh, going to a, a cocktail bar and having a drink, but never more than one, as I recall. And the reason I recall it is occasionally they couldn't afford a babysitter for me, so I would get dragged along. And Boy, I'll tell you, there's nothing tougher for a 11 or 12-year-old boy than to sit in a cocktail lounge listening to people have a conversation. That was true of those days. In fact, I can't ever recall having had a babysitter uh, in my entire life. Very often, I'd be sent to the movies <laughs> on the nights when my, my uh, mother was out on a date. Another important aspect of life is that of respect and discipline among the people. You had some thoughts in that regard. Well, as a matter of fact, yes. I think if anything has changed in a, uh, in a bad way, it might be that. Because we keep hearing, and I assume it's true, uh, and I guess my own kids told me of some examples uh, from their own time in school. The young students today, many of them, some of them, will not respect their teachers and what the teachers say. And I've had uh, one of my uh, own children has done uh, substitute teaching recently and she's made quite a point of this fact that many young students do not show respect for their teacher and I, all I can say is in my day the teacher was a, a, a god we did everything we were told I cannot recall any uh, situation of disrespect for a teacher in my entire career and I, I think that's right and I think it's true also at home uh, I know uh, my own parents had 100% responsibility over me, uh, and uh, I would, would never dream of doing something I wasn't supposed to do, according to my parents. My father had a way of uh, 
explaining to me with a, uh, a paddle or uh, his, the flat of his hand uh, on the back of my bottom, just the rules were in our house. And uh, I, I learned very quickly to, just what those rules were and it paid to follow them. And I can remember an old adage that used to come to us from our previous generations, that spare the rod and spoil the child. And I suspect that may have, we may have drifted a bit away from that in this day, but I can't say that for a fact. And another, one other area where discipline uh, to me is very important is that uh, law enforcement. Uh, it never occurred to anyone I ever knew to uh, argue with a policeman in any way. If the policeman said, this is it, that was it. And I know even today, if someone is breaking into my home, I'm not going to call social services. I'm going to call a policeman to help me out. And I feel very strongly on that point. Well, as we record this, there is certainly a large societal movement known as Black Lives Matter. Certainly, there's a lot of uh, disrespect and uh, concern about the quality of police and law enforcement and so forth to which you addressed. I'm wondering, given the lack of respect and discipline in that regard, do you, having seen things over the years, think that's more an influence of family expectations on individuals, societal pressures, or recognition that police, teachers, and parents deserve respect? Well, frankly, I I would certainly not want to be a policeman today because I think they have a very tough job. There could be one rogue policeman in a group of a hundred, and that gets all the publicity. Everybody has a camera that they can take a picture of anything happening today, and these these pictures become sensationalized in uh, on television, and they cause people to think that the police, all policemen are bad, and they uh, they take away the respect that a policeman deserves for doing a very very tough job. I just happen to think that uh, that's one area where our technological advances have done a lot of damage to our society, and I honestly can't think of any way that we're ever going to solve that one because uh, people are going to assume that what they hear or see on television is typical, and it is always an exa- a very isolated example of something that happens once and is not characteristic of what happens when police do their job. Very well put, I think. Well, we've talked about daily and home life uh, and also technological advances. Those advances certainly affected things in the home, like home appliances, etc. Could you comment on those? Well, yes, I'd be happy to. I, I always think of home appliances. I think of the first refrigerator I ever saw while visiting the home of one of my friends because we, of course, had the ice box with a big block of ice in it, and it was much later before we ever got a refrigerator as such. But the first refrigerator I ever saw had a great big unit on top of it that uh, looked like uh, probably the propulsion part of a uh, space vehicle today, which they called a condenser, and it almost reached the ceiling, and it made a lot of noise, and it did not have a freezer. Freezers were uh, unknown in those days. You had to have that block of ice if you had to, and you couldn't freeze something with a block of ice because it was melting. So uh, freezers had to be rented uh, uh, by somebody who had a big uh, operation going in the, in the town or the city where you were. Stoves were uh, somewhat primitive compared with what they are today. I think there were more gas stoves than there are today, 
Uh, but I think they've gotten gas a better discipline than it was then because every once in a while somebody's house would blow up and that was pretty serious. Your heat in a home came from coal, a coal furnace. Uh, there was in our house uh, just one coal furnace which provided all the heat for the entire house and I know because it was my job after my father died to take care of it, keep it uh, going and uh, make sure that the house didn't freeze up. Uh, the, uh, the coal was delivered by a big truck with a bunch of men in it who would shovel the coal into a chute which they put through the cellar window into the coal bin after which I would take it up with a shovel. Things are a lot simpler these days in providing heat. Air conditioning was totally unheard of, and I cannot imagine what it must have been like to live in the South during those days. Fortunately, by the 30s, people had uh, come to the point where uh, they had flush toilets in most houses. Almost any house, no matter how many people lived in it, had only one bathroom, and uh, that sometimes involved uh, certain uh, complications in the uh, household situation. A power lawnmower was unheard of. Uh, nobody had invented one of those that I know of unless it was an industrial situation. So all lawns had to be mowed by hand. And uh, that was kind of a neat little job, which I certainly had to do in my house. And it was a, a good task for uh, young people in a home to do. And the hand lawnmower certainly polluted the atmosphere a lot less. Uh, it turned out to be uh, something of an anachronism today. I don't think I've seen one in the last uh, 30 years. It's kind of interesting pointing out the positive aspect of that lawnmower as opposed to what we have today. Because one of my, my questions was, with all of these improvements, is there any one that you would like to return to the original? And what comes to mind is maybe a charcoal or wood versus gas grill. I think a lot of people are moving back from gas to charcoal or wood fired grills. I thought, personally, I think uh, maybe it's a matter of nostalgia, but I uh, must say that I uh, much prefer the charcoal taste uh, in my food than I did uh, do the gas grill, even though I had a gas grill uh, because it was so convenient uh, toward the end of the times when I was doing gas grilling or grilling of any kind. It was uh, always kind of an adventure to get uh, the charcoal cooked to just the right point and then to cook the meat on top of it and get a little taste of that charcoal in eating. And I assume it was good for you. I never heard otherwise. Let's turn now to the political landscape during this same time period. Actually, uh, the political landscape, interestingly enough, was pretty simple in my day. Uh, at least it seemed that way to me because we had the same president during uh, uh, all of those formative years when I was learning, uh, developing my character and uh, learning how to deal with life between 5 and 18. Franklin D. Roosevelt was pretty much our permanent president. By the time I became five years old, uh, he was president and uh, uh, he was president right up until the time I was 17 when he died. And he'd been, he was the only one ever elected to a fourth term in office. And uh, he was kind of a father figure because he was carrying us through a very difficult time uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the life of our country. This uh, depression was, was really a dreadful experience for a great many people in our country. And he was doing what he felt was the best way, to, in my opinion, uh, to handle the situation and to tell people that the only thing they had to fear was fear that uh, we were all going to come through this okay. Then he brought us through World War II uh, as the leader of our country, 
uh, don't change horses in midstream, and he was a, a very inspirational reader. I mentioned his fireside chats earlier. So uh, to talk about politics, uh, uh, he had uh, a couple of times he had to have, be re-elected during that time, but I don't think there was ever a real question that he was going to get re-elected each time because father saw uh, Franklin Roosevelt as the guy who was running the country and doing a good job of it. That uh, may sound strange to some who know of me as a lifelong Republican, but uh, it happened that uh, he was uh, he was somebody who uh, was our leader, and, and we really thought highly of him, and there was never any question that he was going to be reelected uh, each time, and we were glad he was. As we sit here today in the midst of Black Lives Matter movement, there is a strong push to abolish or at least rewrite some of our history. What dangers do you see in doing so, and who should decide, and where should that line be drawn? Well, it's kind of hard to rewrite history. It's, uh, it, it can't be rewritten. Uh, some people try to do it. They're tearing down uh, statues of people who uh, did a great deal for our country. And the time may come when some of the popular statues of today get torn down because some other element will take over the country. It's uh, really uh, an unfortunate experience. There have been bad times in our country, uh, certainly in the 30s and 40s, just like uh, uh, there were during the Vietnam War and, and other times. But uh, it's hard to see people showing the same attitude toward their country and their government today as they once did. And people seem to be turning inward and uh, complaining that uh, each person individually is being treated badly. Somehow uh, we've lost something along the way and it's causing rioting in the streets and I think that's a big step backward. Well, those comments are certainly a great segue into the next topic, which would be the state of patriotism during your lifetime. During the uh, 30s, uh, as I mentioned, we pretty much felt that we were being led through it by uh, our president. Uh, it struck me as kind of ironic the other day as I was thinking about some of our heroes of the uh, 30s and recognizing that uh, Black Lives Matter, as you mentioned, because two of the heroes that uh, we had in our country, and I think it was almost universal at the time, as far as I can remember, one of them was the Brown Bomber, Joe Lewis a heavyweight fighter, African-American or a person of color. And everybody just loved Joe Lewis because he just was, was really terrific at what he did and he made good statements when people talked to him on the radio. And then he lost, in 1936, he lost a fight to Max Schmeling, who was a German fighter, heavyweight fighter. And uh, he was being touted by Adolf Hitler as being uh, the Aryan race and a wonderful Nazi, etc., etc., and everybody felt, uh, oh, that's terrible. Our, our brown bomber has lost to a, the man of the super race. And in that same year, there was the Olympics, uh, and Hitler was claiming that his super race was going to win all of the uh, events in, in the Olympics in Berlin. And our uh, African-American Jesse Owen went out and set record after record uh, showing that a black American could beat many anybody that uh, Hitler came up with. And uh, we all cheered for that. And then uh, in 1937, Joe Lewis won the heavyweight championship of the world. And came 1938, a rematch between Max Schmeling and Joe Lewis. And I don't think there was a radio in the country that wasn't turned on for that one. Joe Lewis had something to prove. He had lost a fight to a German in 1936. 
and he came out with the bell rang in that round, in that uh, match, and by the time the bell rang to end the first of the uh, uh, encounters, Max Schmeling was unconscious on the floor. Joe Lewis came out of there and just devastated the man, and the whole country was cheering for that African American man. It just struck me as a little bit ironic that that was the case. That uh, people say, well, the black people were uh, treated badly. Well, they were. They could be our heroes too. Really, the final phase of uh, my development years were the years of World War II. I was. Uh, too young to be involved in it, but the minute the uh, Japanese attacked our, our nation at Pearl Harbor, many of my older friends immediately signed up, rushed to enlist. It was uh, just everybody felt it was the time to be patriotic for our country. Those of us who were left behind and couldn't enlist and couldn't uh, serve uh, on the front lines, we managed to give any extra money we had to the government in terms of war bonds. They even had little stamps that you could buy if you couldn't afford a war bond, which was $18.75. And you could buy stamps for a dime or a quarter, and you had enough enough stamps, and pretty soon you were able to turn them in and, and get a war bond. Uh, and we did scrap drives. Uh, we thought uh, anything we could do for our country was the right thing to do, since we weren't old enough to serve uh, in the military. We went around collecting people's pots and pans, and people gave up many of their favorite utensils just so that they could be melted down and, and made into uh, uh, weapons against the, those people who had attacked our country. And this, uh, my wife even mentioned to me that at one time a woman who had a private railroad in the town where my wife lived gave her the rails of that railroad to the, the uh, war effort. And my, my wife spent a lot of time digging up uh, railroad rails so that they could be melted down and made into, uh, into weapons. It was a, a wonderful time in our country that uh, a level of patriotism which has never come since. The Korean War was a kind of the war that's been forgotten that came after World War II. The Vietnam War was an unpopular war. We have today a volunteer army and people don't rush to sign up for it unless they feel a desire to serve in the military. It's very interesting that, again, as we sit here today, our population doesn't seem to be patriotic enough to even wear masks or to social distance and try to protect one another. Yes, that certainly does seem to be a problem of today. We see uh, pictures on uh, television of large gatherings of people having parties for one thing or another, and all they're doing is uh, spreading this virus so that more Americans will die. Uh, and more people will die in the long run throughout the world. And we just hope that uh, people will catch on to the fact that there's something they can do to stop this virus from spreading throughout the world and throughout our country. And that is to wear a mask and to go social distance and wash their hands. It doesn't seem like asking for much. Some people just are so misguided as to think that uh, by not wearing the mask, they're making a statement. All they're doing is making a, a dumb move. Well, that sums up, I think, very well what life was like then with some comparison to what we have today. Do you have any overall conclusions or, or concluding remarks? I guess about all I could say is that uh, it was fun uh, growing up in the uh, 30s because we didn't know we were poor and we found ways to entertain ourselves and uh, we turned out okay after all. Today, things are very technical. Things have changed a lot. Those of us who are 80, in our 80s and 90s 
uh, have uh, look upon the 30s and 40s as being the, the good old days, and in some respects they were, and in some respects they weren't. And I have to say, today, with all of the technological advances we have, life has certainly changed a very great deal. Uh, only history will say whether it's for the better or for the worse. Uh, some are better and, and some are worse. But today, interestingly enough, these will be considered to be the good old days by some of the young people, the millennials coming along, and uh, as they grow older, they'll look back on the 2020s and uh, they, uh, as being the good old days. And uh, we all have our good old days, and I've just described mine. Well, we certainly appreciate your memories, your insight. I did have a question or two, one of which would be the treatment and handling of the elderly and the infirmed over these many decades that you have witnessed. Has there been a change in attitude and treatment? Actually, I think it's been uh, not a whole lot different. Uh, I can only uh, comment on my my own grandparents' uh, I had the utmost respect for them. I think just about everybody did. Every once in a while you'd have somebody making fun of the old people. And in fact, they wait to shuffle a little bit and they didn't seem to think as quickly as they should and all that. But uh, I didn't see a whole lot of that. And today I feel I've gotten the utmost respect for my own grandchildren and children. And as I look around, I can't really see anybody who I feel has been treated badly. Once in a while you'll get somebody who ignores their own parents or has and sometimes with good reason. <laughs> but uh, I don't feel that uh, there's been a tremendous change along those lines. Uh, I do think that people respect their grandparents and their parents for getting them to where they are, and uh, they realize that they uh, have a responsibility to take care of them as they get older, just as they were taken care of when they were young. The other question regards the degree of changes in some of the topics that you have discussed. The biggest changes between what you lived through and what we're seeing today appear to be in two categories. The changes in communication and the changes in the level of respect, discipline, and patriotism. Do you think there's any correlation? Let me deal with the uh, reaction, uh, the technical changes that have brought about the uh, lack of respect. I think it's been, uh, as I mentioned, this, this case of the television jumping right into sensationalizing any little thing that is recorded, and there's nothing that isn't recorded today uh, from some street corner or from the, uh, the little camera that the policeman wears or from some person standing by uh, pulling out his smartphone. And it's very easy for us to jump to conclusions based on little segments of something that has been sen have been sensationalized. And I think that has led to a lack of respect for people who deserve respect just because people are given the impression that things are pervasive that aren't. I, th I think, our, for example, our police, I think, are generally outstanding in their dedication to the job they have. I don't envy them a bit. It must be tough. Uh, and yet, on television, you would say they're bad folks just because of the kind of sensationalism that takes place. My final question is kind of moving not so much in the past, but in the future. What societal, economic, or political changes do you foresee as a result of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States? Well, being in the middle of something, it's kind of tough to anticipate just how the end will be. 
I'd like to think that it will produce a case of cooperation among nations to the extent that uh, they will feel that they're, they're all in the same boat, we're all in the same uh, area working together and we try to uh, have a common problem to work against and there's nothing that will bring people together faster than having a common problem of this kind. I always, in conclusion, just think back to uh, an occasion some years ago where I was sitting on a balcony looking down at a swimming pool and there were three young women about 17 and they were dressed in little teeny weeny bikinis and it was certainly something that you would expect young men to be looking at. And there were three young men sitting in the, at the end of the pool in their chairs and they had their computers out and they were playing computer games and I said this world will end if this continues. That's the, uh, just a small segment of technological advance that might be a, a negative in some way. Well, we thank you for your time, your insight, and for sharing this uh, incredible period of, of time of uh, your life. What a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's program, perhaps benefiting from a more detailed and personal account of life, events, and changes over the last century as witnessed by Bob Johnson. If by chance we have spurred you to examine our present and the trajectory for our future through consideration of the past, we shall be proud of this effort. Today's music selection is appropriately entitled Superpower Cool Dude by Kevin McLeod and is available at Incomputech.com. On behalf of Bob Johnson, this is Mask Minion Mr. Ivy wishing you well, urging you to be safe, and inviting you back to our next installment of Senior Moments with Bob Johnson.